morning. Welcome to our Aliyah day. I'm glad that you're with me today. It is another wonderful and uh, glorious day. We are all alive. We are well. We are able to come into Hashem's presence this morning and study His Holy Torah. We're part of the Holy Covenant. We're part of the Jewish people. We're, uh, what more can you ask for, right? What, what more could you possibly want? And as we said on Shabbat, that we are actually alive. And so the gift of life uh, trumps everything else. The gift of life is a, an amazing blessing. We are studying the parasha of Balak. So thank you for joining me, all of you who are watching across the fruited plain, and even uh, some people that are watching across the globe from other uh, countries and nationalities, we welcome you. Uh, we know we have friends who watch from England and some who watch from um, Holland and the Netherlands. And uh, it's just amazing to have all of you with us. I think there are people who even watch as far away as uh, Australia. So I'm sure they don't watch live. It's probably 2 o'clock in the morning there. But in any case, we're glad that you join us whenever you join us. So we are in Parasha Belach. And this is the 22nd chapter. This uh, is going to be the fourth Aliyah. It's the fourth day of the week. And so here we find ourselves uh, continuing the story of Balaam who was brought uh, by uh, Balak to come and curse the people of Israel. Uh, yesterday we read about Balaam's donkey who was uh, talking to Balaam and, and uh, an astonishing miracle. We're going to come back and spend some time looking at that today because it's relative to something that uh, came up in a, in a discussion that happened on Facebook some weeks ago, and I want to be able to uh, discuss that. So let's look at the fourth Aliyah. This is, again, chapter 22. We're going to begin reading in verse 31 for the fourth Aliyah. If you have the article Humash, we are on page uh, 863, 863. And here is the fourth Aliyah. It says, Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kirath Huzoth. And Balak slaughtered cattle and sheep, and sent to Balaam and to the other officers who were with him. And it was in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the heights of Baal, and from there he saw the edge of the people. Who has, it says here, Slika, in verse 23, or excuse me, chapter 23. Balaam said to Balak, Build for me seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as uh, Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam brought up a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering while I go. Perhaps Adonai will happen towards me and show me something that I can tell you. And he went alone. God happened upon Balaam, and he said to him, I have prepared seven altars and brought up a bull and a ram on each altar. And Adonai put an utterance in Balaam's mouth and said, Go back to Balak, and thus shall you say. And he returned to him, and behold, he was standing by his burnt offering, and he and all the officers of Moab. And he declaimed this parable and said, From Aram, Balak king of Moab led me. From the mountains of the east, come curse Yaakov for me. Come bring anger upon Israel. How can I curse? 
God is not cursed. How can I anger? Adonai is not angry. From, for from its origins I see it rock-like, and from hills do I see it. Behold, it is a nation that will dwell in solitude and not be reckoned among the nations. Who has counted the dust of Yaakov or numbered a quarter of Israel? May my soul die the death of the upright, and may my end be like his. Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? To curse my enemy have I brought you, but behold, you have even blessed. He spoke up and said, Is it not so that whatever Adonai puts in my mouth, that I must take heed to speak? Now, I want to go back and, and look at just one uh, phrase here that we were just reading. It says, Behold, it's a nation that will dwell in solitude and not be reckoned among the nations. The word for nation here, as it's used with respect to Israel, is am. And not to be reckoned among the nations is the word goyim. And so people have said erroneously that the word Gentile simply means nation or nations, but it does not, actually. It means idolater. That is how the word is used contextually throughout all of Scripture and throughout the entirety of Jewish literature. It is true that in, in at least one instance, Israel is referred to as a nation, as referred to as a um, part of the goyim. But the, um, the difference being is it's referred there as a holy nation, not just a nation. When we're talking here about nations, we are talking about pagan nations. And here it makes a statement that we're not going to be counted among the nations. Therefore, when you have, and this goes back to something I like to always point out whenever the um, commentaries provide the opportunity, is the fallacy of the, both the Noahide movement or the Noahide concept and the Messianic Gentile concept because it presumes that every, all roads lead to heaven, basically. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you are. Basically, we're all going to end up in the same boat. And that's what's sold to people as they're, they're told, hey, uh, it's okay, you can be a Noahide, don't worry about it. But the problem is, we learn clearly they're not to be counted. They're not, we're not going to be counted among the nations. So it, it basically is, is telling us unequivocally that there are two covenants at play here. And don't be fooled by that uh, nonsense. We have to understand there is salvation as unto Israel. That's the reality. It's not to everybody else. Now, somebody listen to me say this because they've been inundated with, with years in their own lifetime, perhaps decades, outside of their lifetime, millennia, of false teaching about this and misunderstanding. When I said that not everybody's going to be included, I'm not saying that there are people who are going to be excluded based on their gender or race or ethnicity or whatever. What I mean by that is in order to be in the covenant, you have to be in the covenant. In order to be uh, saved, you have to become part of Israel. That's what happened. The door, the door is open. That's, what, that's, that's the lesson. You know, sometimes I say that, by the way, and uh, inevitably there's somebody out there again because they're just... Well, you could almost say it's like brainwashing. It's like over and over again. 
uh, people have been brainwashed because they've been they've misunderstood uh, the, the the writings of the apostle Paul because all of that idea about messianic gentile every single bit of it comes from the letters of Paul none of it is found anywhere else uh, in the Tanakh it's not found in the Gospels it's not found anywhere in Jewish literature it's all from the letters of one man and uh, so that's where they get that from and so they're just inundated with this concept and they don't understand the, about the idea of becoming a part of Israel. But the analogy that I use to help people understand this, because whenever I say, listen, you're a, you're a non-Jew and you want to be saved through the Jewish Mashiach, so you should convert and come into Israel and receive the Mashiach. That's, that's what happened in the first century. It was not anything other than that. And you have to understand something else um, that I'd like to say as an aside is that in the first century, the context of water baptism was entirely uh, centered around the idea of conversion. Nobody went to the mikveh, um, if you were not Jewish. Nobody went to the mikveh for any other reason than to convert. That's the context of water baptism, as it's commonly referred to. And so we have to understand the context of that ceremonial act. And the only reason, just to reiterate, the only reason that a non-Jew would ever go to the mikvah, there was no other reason to do it. In fact, they would not be allowed to do it except to convert initially. Okay? Otherwise, what's going on? So, um, the analogy that I use to help people understand is because they, they can't wrap their heads around it a lot of times. Some people, again, because of false teachings, they say, look... Uh, I don't get it. You know, I have to become Jewish. It's like this. You want to go see a movie. This is an analogy I've used many times. You want to go see a movie? You can go see the movie. The only thing you have to do is buy a ticket. And let's, in fact, let's change the analogy a little bit. Let's say there's a movie playing and you want to go see the movie, but you have to have a ticket. Now, the good news is, the basara is, that somebody has purchased your ticket already and it's waiting for you at the will call booth. Now, if you've gone to a movie theater, at least the ones we have here, you go and you pick up your ticket and you go to the little lady or the gentleman who's standing there at the, at the uh, kiosk and he scans your ticket. And if the little light goes green or whatever, you can go see the movie. It's that, it's that simple. Normally, you go to the ticket box and you buy one or maybe you do it online whatever and you've got your little ticket there and he scans it the little UPC uh, code but suppose you want to go see the movie and so somebody has purchased the ticket for you already but you have to go to the will call booth to pick up the ticket and that way once you get the ticket you can go right in and they'll scan it and go right in it's no problem what would happen if you show up to the theater and you go right up, you, you, you bypass the will call booth, or you say, forget it, I don't want to do that. And you go right up to the uh, guy or the, or the lady and you say, I'm here to see the movie. So I'm going to see your ticket, please. Say, no, no, you don't need to see my ticket. I want to go see the movie. And you try to bum rush past them and, 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 and you know, force your way into the theater because you, because you just don't want to pick up the ticket. You don't like that. For whatever reason, you don't like that uh, process. It's not, it doesn't comply with your whatever you think is right or wrong. You think you should just be able to go right in. What do you think is going to happen? Well, you might get arrested, but more likely, probably the security there or the police officer that's stationed there are probably going to escort you out and maybe write you a, 
a trespass warrant. You know, bad things, in other words, going to happen. And all you had to do was pick up the ticket. This is this is the analogy I use to people. It's not that it's not that hard. So I want to go back and look at Balaam before he gets on the donkey and comes. One of the questions that's asked is, why is Hashem mad? We talked about this yesterday. We talked about this yesterday that if if Hashem told uh, Balaam to go then why is he angry? And we learned that the reason he's angry is that he wasn't supposed to go to begin with. In other words, what God had told him initially was was the word, and we, we learned yesterday, he went back and said, I know you said this, but you probably changed your mind, and that betrays a whole theological um, mess that we have even in our modern age. We, we have the theology of Balaam in our hearts still today. We think that what God said yesterday, he's probably going to change his mind. And we do this on a deep theological level with respect to the Torah, but we also do it on our own personal levels too, don't we? We know God wants us to do something, and, and we come back a little bit later thinking he maybe he's changed his mind. But the other reason that's cited here, it says Rambam gives another reason for, for Adonai's anger at Balaam. It says, from the beginning, Adonai authorized Balaam to accompany Balak's messengers only after informing them <clears throat> that he would not curse Israel but would obey Adonai's commands. However, in his great desire to depart with them, he said nothing about that. It was this omission of Balaam's that caused Adonai's anger. So when Balaam went back and said, hey guys, I've got good news. I've got good news. I told you before that Hashem said, uh, don't go. Hey, hey, no, no, don't go. But y'all came back and you brought a box of Lucky Charms, which is my favorite cereal. And you have all the money and all the royalty and, and he brought me this, uh, this tiara to wear. By the way, Speaking of Tierra, I meant to say this from the beginning, and I, I, I forgot. Today is our daughter's birthday, Hadassah. She turned 15 today. Today is her birthday, so I should want to say happy birthday to Hadassah. She's been waiting all year to turn 15. And so we'll give it a month of joy, and then she'll start talking about her 16th birthday. But for now, she's 15. So happy birthday, Hadassah. Baruch Hashem. Anyway, so he said, um, you, got, you brought me the tiara. And so I told you, wait right here, I'll go back, see if God changes mind. Because, you know, from time to time, God changes, Hasvishalom. He came back and he said, good news. Uh, Hashem said, I should go with you. Now, everybody who is there, they've come to get Balaam so that he should go back and curse Israel. So when he says, guess what, Hashem says, I can go with you now. They are under the presumption that Hashem is acquiescing to their desire to curse the people of Israel. And Balaam does not tell them, oh, by the way, he said I could go with you, but I'm only supposed to say what he's going to tell me to say. And what that means is he's going to, he's going to speak a, a blessing rather than a curse. But Balaam, out of his, his lust for money, perhaps his lust for fame because he hated Israel 
And because his best interest, or his interest rather, was not the interest of Hashem, but his own interest, he left that out. So there's a lesson there for us. Some of the lessons, of course, are obvious. But one of the lessons is, is we should not hide who we are. Sometimes people try to hide who they are. Now, I understand from time to time uh, that people are traveling. And maybe because they're traveling, they're going through dangerous places. Maybe they don't wear a kippah. Maybe they wear a baseball cap instead. Or maybe they tuck in their seat seat, right? I know that uh, I've had friends and relatives who've traveled. They've gone to areas where it's very, it can be dangerous for Jews. And so they do that. It's completely understandable. Life before law. But sometimes we like to hide our Jewishness because, you know, we're, we don't want to stand out. We don't, we don't, uh, we're embarrassed maybe, whatever the case may be. And I just want to be cautious about that because Balaam did not, he didn't want to stand out. He didn't want to make it plain that he was, he was uh, beholden to Hashem. So that's one of the reasons that God was angry. It says here, there's a highlighted quote, something I highlighted from Rabbi Bunk. He says, Just as Esau was obliged to approve the blessing given to his brother Yaakov, the prophet of the nations was obliged to bless the Jewish people. So too in Messianic times, long-time enemies of Israel will want to pay tribute to Israel, uh, to Israel's ideal, rather, and its historical mission. There's going to come a day when our enemies will, in fact, bless us. This kind of happened at the Nuremberg trials, um, where there was one of the um, Nazis that was being was, was taking out to be uh, hung, and I forget which one it is. It's probably easily to find this out and Google it. But while he was being hung, uh, he mentioned that this was like the days of Esther, the days of Haman. In a way, he was blessing Israel, recognizing that his fate of suffering was, in fact, because uh, they were blessings. It's remarkable, isn't it, that here you have a man so so deranged in hatred, realizing what happened to Haman, realizing that now he's the Haman at the hangman, and uh, still filled with hatred. It's just uh, it's it's spooky and scary, my friends. How far? Our, uh, our hearts can take us. We can know what's right, but hate it. That's scary, isn't it? And we have to continually condition our lives and our souls to want what is right. Um, Baruch Hashem. So, I want to touch on something here, because um, a few weeks ago in Adrash... Uh, it's been a few, it's been, I don't know, maybe a month ago now, I'm not sure, but but I made a, a statement, and it was a 100% true statement, and uh, the statement was this, that if you have someone who is allegedly um, uh, supposed to be a prophet of Hashem, a prophet of Hashem, it's very important, because we see with the story of Balaam, Balaam was a prophet, but he wasn't a prophet of Hashem. He was a prophet who was a prophet of the nations. He was a sorcerer. He was a magician. And he was able to, to plug in, so to speak, to some spiritual truths. Now, Hashem used him. But uh, it's not, you know, it, it, he, he used him, but it's not a way in which any of us would want to be used. 
Because Balaam's ultimate demise was to die uh, by the sword at the hands of Israel. All right? So, but because I want you to, what I'm about to get at is the concept of God can use anything or anyone. Because it's a very common mantra among, uh, uh, well, just to be frank, Christian thought. Um, and it's true that God can use anyone or anything, but but I want, I'm trying to articulate this. It's a very complex idea, and I'm trying to make it simple to understand. That Sometimes we say, well, God can use anyone, or God can use anything. That dumbs us down, because what we're really saying is, I don't have to be all that special. I don't have to try hard. I don't have to be uh, particularly holy, or even want to, or even try to, because, you know, God can use me anyway. That's not the way God wants us to think. It's true that God can use anyone or anything. But that's not his ideal. And even though God used Balaam, no one would say that Balaam was a prophet of God. Nobody would say that. It just so happens that God used Balaam despite Balaam, but this was for a specific purpose. So what I was saying was, you have lots of people who run around, they have for years, claiming to be prophets, but none of them keep the Sabbath. Now, by Sabbath-keeping, I was employing a very common Jewish understanding that if you are Shomer Shabbos, then that means you, um, you keep all the commandments. It's a euphemism. To, when somebody says, you know, are you observant? You respond, I'm Shomer Shabbos. That means you're, you keep kosher, you wear tzitzit, you daven, you wear tefillin, all that kind of stuff. It means everything. Because if you're not Shomer Shabbos, you're not going to be anything else. All right? And so if someone is claiming to be a prophet of Hashem and they're not keeping the commandments, my, my statement was they're not a prophet. It's all Hashem. And that's 100% fact. Because you never find in Scripture, ever, in any way, shape, or form, a prophet who is not Torah observant. Never happens. And so... Uh, someone on Facebook shared that idea, and some people responded and said they started getting down into the weeds about Shabbos observance, and they kind of missed the point because it wasn't just about keeping the Sabbaths, about keeping all the commandments. But somebody brought up, well, God used a donkey, <laughs> and the donkey wasn't uh, Jewish or wasn't uh, observant. And, of course, that's, that's also a common idea. God, God, yes, he did use a donkey. I suppose he could use a chicken, too, or he could use just about anything he wanted to. But in this case, he used a donkey. And so uh, the problem is, do you want to be this donkey? If, that, if that, that's God's idea for you, you want to be the donkey, let's learn about the donkey, shall we? So God can use a donkey. Yes, he can. It says, Balaam is said to have practiced bestiality with this donkey. This is why he used the donkey, because the donkey was very close in a very sick way to Balaam. See, my friends, this is the value of Jewish literature. You have to understand when, you know, we're talking here about prophets of God, true prophets of God, which there aren't any today, but true prophets of God that follow the Torah. I'm not talking about somebody who has um, occasionally a prophetic insight or prophetic word. That's different. I'm talking about people who are, quote-unquote, prophets of Hashem. Okay? Since Yochanan the Immerser, there haven't been any. The Mashiach is a a prophet, but he's beyond prophecy. I'm I'm talking here about 
human beings that are prophets. And so um, we say, well, we're talking about prophets of God, and in order to try to speak against keeping the Torah, like you don't have to, I just want to be the donkey because God can use a donkey, do you? says here, and so the Midrash teaches that the animal died immediately after his last word. Um, yes, God did use a donkey, but it was a one-time thing, and it's interesting because we're going uh, uh, to read here in a second. Oh, here it is. Hashem wanted to keep the donkey from becoming an object of worship after its connection with a great miracle. Rashi adds another reason. So that no one, listen to this, so that no one could later point to this donkey as the animal that silenced Belam with her rebuke, for Adonai respects the honor of mankind. So when people point back and say, well, God used the donkey. If he used the donkey, he can use me. My friends, do you understand that that is not a good thing to say? Because immediately after God miraculously opened the mouth of this donkey, immediately after the donkey said its final word, it died. Why? Because God did not want people to be able to point back to it as an example. And one of the reasons is, is because ultimately animals are ser sent to serve man, not the other way around. So I, I just want to say that using the idea of, well, God used a donkey is, is not, um, that is not good. That is lotov. And, and it is completely inappropriate to say, to try to rebuttal against the fact that prophets were always observant of the Torah. And that if one was not observant of the Torah, there's no way they could have been a prophet. No way. It's impossible. How can you, my friends, be a prophet to try to t steer people towards the will of God when you yourself are defying the will of God? Now, in, in most instances, we would say that's hypocritical. And, and generally speaking, we do not allow hypocrites to be leaders, teachers, prophets. And so it's impossibility. And it's totally inappropriate to use a one-time, one-time, never happened again, one-time event in, in history, which was a supernatural miracle that God used for a very specific reason, never to happen again, to use that as our basis of argument for the rest of all time, to argue against the need to be Torah observant in order to be a prophet. Do you understand what I just said? And only to find out that, yep, when God did use that donkey, yep, he did. And as soon as she uttered her last word, she died. So that's the donkey you want to be? That's the example you want to be? That's why we have to be oh, oh, so careful. And again, this is the value of studying Jewish literature of looking at the scriptures through Jewish eyes, not Gentile eyes, not Western eyes. This is the value of Lapid Judaism going back in time and living this faith like the apostles led it, uh, lived it, like the people of the first century lived it, 
like Yeshua lived it. This is the value. Because otherwise, we get off. And, and being off just a little bit it can be detrimental. The analogy that I've used in uh, times past was from my experience um, in navigation school. And, and something that just stuck with me. And even back then, it stuck with me and I wasn't even, I was in no way, shape or form back in those days thinking that I would be doing what I'm doing today. But um, back then, we learned that you can be out on the open ocean in the middle of the night with cloudy skies, no reference points. And all you have is your compass. And you better be... Uh, you better be uh, paying attention to that because if you're off a little bit, depending on the distance you're traveling, you could be thousands, you could be hundreds, perhaps thousands of miles off course. You, instead of landing on, the, uh, on, on, on the, the beach that you're supposed to land upon where you have support, you might be falling right into enemy hands. Therefore, it is important, my friends, to be precise, as precise as possible when we are following after Hashem. One final thing as we're concluding up, uh, as usual, there's more to say, but we'll just continue this, the discussion tomorrow. But I just want to point out, uh, again, from uh, Rabbi Monk to verse 32, For what reason did you strike your donkey these three times? He was, uh, Bilam was asked. And Rambam connects this prohibition against tormenting animals with this passage. This law teaches us to shun violence and forbids us from making animals suffer in vain. On the contrary, we show mercy and pity to all animals, except when necessary for human cons consumption, and even then, we must minimize unnecessary suffering. This is one reason why we have the Jewish way of slaughtering. It is the most humane way to slaughter an animal. And this is why one of the reasons why we're not allowed to eat meat that has not been kosherly slaughtered. And one of the most important reasons of, of avoiding that is because the animal was not slain in a humane, Torah-true way. And therefore, to eat, and this is a reality, to eat meat, poultry and beef and so on, that has not been kosher slaughtered is to engage and animal cruelty, which is forbidden by Torah law. It says, we may not slaughter an animal for pleasure or with violence. So the Torah teaches us to be kind to animals. And our dogs and our cats said, Amen. End of our Aliyah today. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be together again tomorrow, Bezrat Hashem, for the fifth Aliyah. And to share more insights. Until then, I want you to have a blessed and wonderful and amazing day. And uh, with God's help, we'll see each other tomorrow. Shalom and blessings.